On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Ironically, I'm so thirsty today, and it has, this isn't like an opening for my sermon. Like, I'm just so thirsty, and I'm normally so self-conscious that I don't drink during the sermon, even though I'm parched every time. Today, I'm actually going to try and drink water. Yeah, right? Man, sad if that gets collapsed, but okay. All right. Um, so we're, we're just going to jump right into it. If you haven't been with us, uh, we're making our way through John. Uh, we're in John chapter 7, obviously. Um, and the, the setting is that Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of the Booths. Um, and this is a seven-day feast. And Leviticus 23 um, gives us some insight as to what the purpose of the feast was. So I want to read a couple verses. It says, you, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I am the people, or that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So he made them dwell in, in booths, or uh, another word for that is tabernacles. As they went through the wilderness, they had to take their home with them. So this is a, this is a portable home. You could think of it like a tent. And, and, and God did important things on this journey through the wilderness. So he set up this feast. Like, just like he set up all these regular feasts, he set up a feast so that they would remember, they would recall things. Um, not, not just the generation that actually lived it, but the future generations as well would, would, would remember who God is and what he'd done, the, the relationship that God has with, with his people. Um, because God wasn't just moving them from point A to point B. Like, the, 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 just going from here to there was, was not the whole point. God was doing an important work in them. The journey helped solidify their relationship with God, and he demonstrated his power by providing for them. He, he demonstrated over and over again his love for them, grace and mercy. He's saying to them, if you catch it at the end of the verse there, I am the Lord your God. And it's easy to just blow right over that. But he's, he's talking about a relationship here. Right? Israel has a unique relationship with God, the creator, with, with Yahweh. So he's, he's strategic in what he's doing on this trip. 
right? He's, he's being intentional. He's, he's building their relationship. He's giving them a, a foundation uh, that, that shapes this relationship between them, that they would trust him, that they would be dependent on him, that they would be obedient to him. Uh, I don't know if you've already gone on vacation this summer. If you're going on vacation this summer, um, my, my family and I were, were about to uh, hop in the car for several hours to drive to Montana, right? It's, it's a, to me, it's a long drive. Um, and I don't love long drives. Um, my kids, I have four kids, and uh, my five-year-old, he's developed a habit when we're in the car, um, more than like half an hour, he says, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And it's, it must be just in the DNA somewhere, because I don't feel like anyone taught him to do that, and yet he does that. And, and there will be arguments in the car. We'll, we'll have to probably rearrange seating multiple times. It, road trips are hard, right? But there's also good. There's also a lot of good. As nice as it would be to maybe just hop on a plane and fly to Montana and then rent a car there, there's a lot of good things that are going to happen for our family, being stuck in that little car together. Uh, my last church, we, we, uh, we took a mission trip. Uh, we took the youth group on a mission trip to Mexico, um, and we drove. And it was, I think, I think it was 70 of us with, with adults and everything. So we had a bus, we had two 15-passenger vans, and an RV hauling down all the way to Mexico. And even, like, even when we got to the border, I, I think it was another eight hours past the border, right? So it was a long trip. So total, in the car, like rest stops, gas breaks, food, all that. We were on the road 54 hours, right? It was a lot. Um, it was a lot. So two years later, we're imagining the same missions trip. Not, not the exact same place, but pretty close. And as leadership, we thought, you know, I don't know what it costs to fly. That might be nice. And we look into that. And, uh, and, and, and everything in life, there, there's, there's benefit and there's cost. No matter what the decision is, there's benefit and there's cost. And as we evaluated, we decided the cost was too high. Uh, the, the cost of not having that time together in, on the road. Um, because there were things that happened in the buses, in the vans, in the RV that we couldn't reproduce in any other way, relationships that happened. There were, there were issues that came up. People bugged each other, and, and, and they had to work through that, and it was, it was really good for us. God, God was doing something in our youth group through that, and, and we, as nice as flying sounded, right, to have a bathroom <laughs> in the thing that's hauling you to Mexico sounded great. Um, Getting food and water served to you sounded good, but we decided it, it, it was not worth it. Man, God did so much on this trip through the wilderness for the people of Israel, and he wanted them to remember. So for a week, they, they celebrated, they remembered, they lived in, in, in these tabernacles, these booths, in order to recall the power of God and his deep love for his people, how he miraculously provided for them over and over again when they could not provide for themselves. On the road trip, they complained, right? Are we there yet? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. And I'm sure as Jesus spoke these words about coming and drinking and, and the rivers of living water flowing, I'm sure they thought back to Moses and, and remembered when Israel complained to Moses that they didn't have any water, and God miraculously provides water out of the rock for them. God was the only one that could meet their needs, and he continued to do it time after time. But it wasn't just physical needs that he was meeting. He was showing them that he could meet the deep needs of their heart, of their soul. 
that they could know and trust the Lord. So God glorified himself over and over again. He, he demonstrated his redeeming power, his love to the people of Israel. So they'd come and they would celebrate this feast and they were to look back and remember what God had done, who he was, the relationship with him. But the feast also had them looking forward, longing for a day when God would complete his work. And all the feasts, they all pointed to God. They, they, they all pointed to who he was, what he had done. And Jesus comes, and Gary months ago preached a great sermon on Jesus being the fulfillment of all the feasts. So they were longing through these feasts, and Jesus comes, and he's the one who's going to completely fulfill all the feasts. So he calls out on the last day and makes an invitation. Verse 37, he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, the invitation's open to anyone, right? Not, not even just Israel, right? The invitation today isn't bound by where you live, how much money you make, who you voted for, whatever. The invitation is open. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires Take the water of life without price. And we all thirst. I heard a pastor this week. He said, your body was made to live on water and your soul was made to live on God. We're all thirsty. But the challenge is, will we recognize that, that what our soul thirsts for is God? Because our, our sin nature has messed up our palate. Right? It's given us taste buds that, that want other things, that thirst for other things. But I'm confident that Jesus, and John, as he records Jesus' words, that they both intend for us to remember back to chapter 4, the woman at the well. She was thirsty. She continued to try and satisfy that thirst. The story tells us that she married four different guys, and then the guy she was living with, she wasn't even married to, but she continued to thirst, and she settled. And Jesus talks to her about this living water. At first, she doesn't get it. She thinks it's physical water. And even that would be good, to not have to physically thirst anymore. But eventually she realizes what Jesus is talking about, that Jesus is offering to meet that thirst in her soul. Her life had been spent attempting to satisfy, and she had just settled. She decided, I can't find anything better than this. And thank God that every drink outside of Christ does not satisfy and I'm not saying other things don't satisfy for a moment, even maybe for a while. But none of them ultimately satisfy. So, so we either settle for a drink that's good enough, or we continue to look and look and look. But by God's grace, we'll never be satisfied by our accomplishments the way we can be satisfied in Jesus. We'll never be satisfied by wealth or, or power or prestige or sex or whatever it is. Only Jesus ultimately satisfies. We are made to thirst for him for that reason. To be made right with God, to have your guilt taken away for, for the kingdom of God. And even if, even if I say kingdom of God and you have no idea what that means, you long for kingdom of God-like things. You long for what God will do, for God to bring peace, for God to get rid uh, of our pain, for there to be no more sorrow, no more guilt or shame. So Jesus is proclaiming, you don't need to hope that someday God will deliver. I'm here 
right now to deliver on the promises. I'm the fulfillment of all the promises. I will deliver everyone who comes to me from their sin. I'll bring peace. I'll make the world right. This is what our thirst is all about, whether you know it or not. And God has decided he's going to let us choose what we drink. Right? And this is what sin is, is choosing anything to drink from any fountain other than Christ. But it's by God's grace that every drink ultimately doesn't satisfy that thirst. We can search, we can hunt, but we'll never be satisfied. And, and maybe you're in the room, you're like, hey, I don't follow Jesus, and I'm satisfied. I'd say your bar is set really low. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that you have no idea. You have no idea the life that is in Jesus. This life isn't as good as it gets for those who know Jesus. This life is as bad as it gets. C.S. Lewis, um, he gives this image of a kid playing in a mud puddle. And the kid's having a great time, right? He, he, he's splashing this mud puddle. Maybe he's making mud pies. I don't know. But he's playing around. He has no idea that not that far off is the ocean. And he could have a day at the ocean. How much better would that be to play in the sand, to play in the waves, in the tide pools? And the boy's having fun, no doubt. In, in the mud puddle, but does it even compare? No, it's not even close. We're made to drink from the fountain that is in Jesus because he alone will satisfy us forever. So what if you, what if you don't thirst for Jesus, but wish that you did? Like you don't have that palate to thirst for Christ, but you wish that you did. I tell you, be encouraged that you even have that longing because that's Jesus in you. That's God at work in you, changing your palate causing you to long to believe in him, to long to trust in him. So I encourage you to keep coming to Christ. Keep praying, keep coming to his word. Back to verse 37, Jesus said, come and drink. So what does that mean? Before we can get to what, what does it mean to drink, there's a couple things that, that, that I think are implied just, just by drinking Jesus in. We're, we're taking Jesus into ourselves, right? This is a, this is a relationship that's personal, and, and it's close. It, it's, it's not just intellectual, right? You, you can know the whole Bible. You, you can have great theology and yet not know Jesus. I can know stats about the Portland Trailblazers. I like them way too much, right? I, I can know tons of stats. I read way too many news articles about the Blazers. I've heard personal stories through news articles about the Blazers, but no one would say, oh yeah, Greg knows Damian Lillard. Like, that would be a ridiculous statement. But knowing Jesus is not just this intellectual pursuit about facts. Knowing Jesus is, the relationship is close, it's not distant. I'm sure some of you for work, you probably have relationships that are strictly over email, like with a vendor or a client, or you email them regularly. You kind of even know some things about each other, and yet it's not a relationship. Like it's, it's a distant relationship at best. Knowing Jesus means having a true relationship. Jesus is a real person. I get he's altogether different, fully God, fully man. But if you've settled and assumed that, that a relationship with God is this distant thing, I'm telling you, there, there's so much more. You don't know what God has for you. The God of Scripture, the relationship is script, in Scripture is described intimately. So that's part of what it means to, to drink. Um, when it says to drink, it, says, it means to believe. 
Right? You could insert believe there. To, to drink means to believe. To drink in Jesus means to believe in Jesus. The very next words in verse 38 after he says drink is, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. So we're, we're to believe. What are we to believe in Jesus? And I actually want you to talk to the person next to you. What does scripture say you ought to believe in Jesus? I won't make you tell me, but just talk to the people right around you. What does scripture say you should believe in Jesus? Go. Give you ten more seconds. Five seconds. Okay, sorry if that was awkward for you. I know I've never done that before. But I actually wanted you to engage and not just hear me say what you're supposed to believe in Jesus. And, and I hope that's always the case. When, when someone's teaching, whether it's a sermon or a Bible study, I hope, I hope you're thinking on your own, that you're evaluating, that you're, you're thinking through Scripture on your own. So what are we, what are we to drink in? What are we to, to believe about Jesus? Here's a couple of things. He's eternal. He's the uncreated creator. Jesus is God. He's, he's fully God, fully man, in perfect unity with the Father. He's sinless. He lived the life that we, we were supposed to live but could not live. He died in our place. He died the death that we deserved to die. But death couldn't hold him down. He resurrected. And he ascended. And I hope you know that Jesus loves you. I hope you know the extent of God's love for you. These are some of the essentials right, that we are to believe. This is the fountain that we're to drink from in Jesus. John 6.35, the latter half of it says, Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if we're to stop thirsting, I take that to mean we're, we're totally satisfied in Jesus, that we can be totally satisfied in Jesus. Jesus said that rivers of, of living water would flow out of our hearts, and, and there, there are so many places in, in the Old Testament that I could take you to. I, I want to take you to just two verses. Both are from Isaiah. One's in chapter 44. God says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering my blessing on your descendants. Chapter 58, verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water who wa whose waters do not fail. So the Holy Spirit produces life in us. We'll read that in verse 39. And it's not just a little life. right? It's not a tiny bit of life, but, but the life that's produced in the believer's heart will be like this flow of rivers of living water. Right? Not one river, but, but rivers of living water. So the imagery here is an abundant amount of water that's teeming with life, right? Not, not like a, a stagnant pond 
or, or a lake. I don't know if you swim in Lachmas Lake. I choose not to because I've heard some things. Um, one of the things I've heard is that like the bottom 12 to 18 inches is just like this hovering stagnation that you have no hope at seeing through. So I don't swim there. This water that God offers, it is full of life. It's abundant. The source is God. It's pure. The quality could not be better. The source is not running out. Verse 39, now, he, uh, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There is a ton to talk about with the Holy Spirit. If you were looking ahead in your Bibles and saw that it mentions the Holy Spirit today, and we're hoping we're going to get deep into it. We're not, because there's only a little bit here, right? I know maybe you're excited, like, oh, finally this conservative church is talking Holy Spirit. We'll get there, okay? It's, it comes later in John. Uh, but, but it points out a, a couple things in, in this verse. One, that all believers receive the Holy Spirit. So if, if you know Jesus, you're never alone. You might not have an, another person with you at times. You're never by yourself. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. The Holy Spirit helps us, guides us, illuminates truth. John 14, 26, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Oh, this, the Holy Spirit of God, resides in every believer. I'm pretty sure all of us take that for granted. Then uh, it points out that, that the Holy Spirit had not yet come, right? It, it says, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And John assumes that, that the readers of this gospel will read it over and over again. John explains a lot of things. He doesn't give us an explanation on this one because he assumes that you've read the gospel or that you're familiar with, with the other gospel accounts and you know that Jesus came. He, he lived a sinless life. He died. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He, he was seen by many, many people, talked to the disciples. Eventually, he ascends to the right hand of God. And, and then shortly after that, the Holy Spirit is is given and, and now that's the case for every believer in Christ like I said the, the the role of the Holy Spirit in the Jesus follower is vital the Holy Spirit gives us life um, uh, I want to read uh, Romans 8 11 uh, I'm, I'm trying to memorize Romans 8 I'm not super far in I'm working on verse 11 I thought I might be able to spout it off today but I can't so I'm going to read it it says this, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Right? The, the Spirit for the Christian is absolutely necessary. Right? And Jesus said that it's actually to our advantage. In John 16, 7, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, who's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And, and if Jesus didn't tell us that it was, it was to our advantage, we would never believe it. We want Jesus to be next to us in the flesh, and yet he says it's to your advantage because the Spirit will live in you. The Spirit produces life in you, and this life 
is abundant. Right? If you're a Christian, you know the life that the Spirit produces is abundant. It is full. It's a life that brings freedom. Right? It's a life that, that isn't crushed or, or dictated by circumstances. I don't know everybody's story in the room, but we have some people in the room that you've been through hard stuff. You've been through hard stuff. And, and those who shared with me some of your stories, you've testified to what God has done in you, to the life that he has produced in you, the, the peace that he has given you, how he sustained you through things that you never thought you would have to go through. But you clung to Jesus, and, and he gives you that life, the life that the Spirit brings I wish I could explain it. I wish I could tell you how good it is. I hope you know. Because the Holy Spirit works with power in, in every Christ follower. Verse 70, when they, this is the crowd, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And then verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. So, so the prophet and the Christ, obviously these are really, really strong statements. Um, when, when they say the prophet's probably referring back to Deuteronomy 18.15, which I, I referred to weeks ago when it says that God will raise up a prophet like Moses. right? And, and maybe they're thinking of this because of the whole water and the rock thing and what Jesus just said. And is Jesus like Moses? Sure. But infinitely better. And then others say this is the Christ. And as modern readers, maybe for us, we hear the prophet and the Christ, and we think, how different are those things? Because on this side, like, we, we understand, sorry about that, we understand what, what it means that Jesus is the prophet. Um, we understand, we understand Jesus' roles, but they separated these two, and, and we see this even in John chapter 1 uh, with, with uh, John the Baptist in verse 19, if you want to turn there. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So, so the prophet and the Christ, they're, they're different individuals in their mind. But the crowd recognizes the uniqueness of Jesus. They can't put their finger on who he is. Some of them are getting really, really close. Maybe some are there. A lot of them can't. But they see they see that he's unique, and they're, they're divided over who he is. Continuing in verse 41, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Because that's where they knew Jesus had lived. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And, and they're correct. The Christ would come from David, from Bethlehem. Uh, and John, if you haven't picked up on this, he loves irony. He, he loves irony. I'm confident that he assumes his readers know that, humanly speaking, Jesus was from the line of David and that he certainly was born in Bethlehem. So in this moment, there are these people that are held back from belief based on their incorrect assumption right, about Jesus. They, they were mistaken and believed that because Jesus was from Galilee, he was, he, was, he was born in Galilee and therefore couldn't be from Bethlehem. Knowing the truth about Jesus is so important. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. 
I don't know why you're here. I don't know if, if, uh, if you're trying to decide if you believe in Jesus. I don't know if someone you love like, made you come. I don't know if you, you heard we're having a barbecue. I have no idea why you're here. But I want to encourage you to make sure that the, the issues, the obstacles that hold you back from Jesus, make sure they're right. Like, make sure you're right about those things because if you're wrong like them, you're missing the life that Jesus gives you. You're, you're, you're missing the, the freedom that Jesus gives. They're wrong. They thought he's from Galilee, so he must not have been born in Bethlehem. He can't be the Messiah. And if they stick, if they stick with that assumption, they miss out on everything that Jesus gives. Verse 43 so there was a division among the people over him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Tension is high. His hour had not come yet. Verse 45, the officers, and, and last week, to pause real quick, the chief priests and the Pharisees ordered the, the officers, the temple guard, to go arrest Jesus. So, verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They were given an order to go arrest Jesus. They come back empty-handed, and this is their answer. The officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. Imagine giving an answer like that to your boss for why you didn't get something done. I don't know the, the exact comparable. You're getting in trouble. You might get a tongue lashing, maybe dock and pay, fired, I don't know. The answer is shocking here. It's certainly not acceptable to the chief priests and Pharisees. And, and you would think, or I would think, that these officers would want to cover themselves and make up an excuse that sounds plausible. Like maybe, um, boy, the crowd is really into Jesus, and we thought if we arrested Jesus in front of the crowd, it's going to start this riot, and I know how you guys feel about riots. We don't want that to happen, right? Like at least that is plausible, but they say no one's ever spoke like this man. We've never heard someone speak words like this, and, and the, the officers, they're, they're Levites, they're, they're, they're religiously trained. They're, they're very familiar with the Hebrew Bible. They know about the Messiah, and the words of Jesus just stop them in their tracks. And I don't know if they believed yet or not, um, but at this moment, they realize that there's no one like Jesus. No one's ever spoken this way, and they have no idea how true those words are. Right? They, they have no idea that they're 100% true, that no one ever spoke like this man, that no one ever did and no one ever will because no one is like Jesus. No one else could be like Jesus. Does Jesus ever stop you in your tracks? Right? Knowing Jesus, does, does that ever just overwhelm you? Do you just marvel that, that you know Jesus? Or as you read God's word, do you, just, do you just have to stop sometimes? You intended maybe to read a whole chapter, but you, you only get two verses deep because of what God just said in his word is so amazing. Man, we should be stopped in our tracks just like these officers. They recognize that Jesus, he's different, that, that there's no one like him. Well, the Pharisees, they're not very excited about that answer. Verse 47 the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? And the Pharisees are closed off to Jesus. The only plausible explanation in their mind for what the officers have done is they'd been, they'd been duped. 
They'd been deceived. They were convinced, the Pharisees were convinced that what they believed about Jesus was correct and anyone that disagreed was wrong. And obviously, the irony is that they're the ones who'd been deceived. Verse 48, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So the Pharisees are, they're boiling with anger. They're venting their frustration. They're upset. They gave this clear order, and their excuse is terrible why they didn't arrest him. And I don't know if you, you catch it here, but they think they're better. They think they're better than the crowd. They, they say, this crowd that does not know the law, right? They're arrogantly, they're, 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 they're condescending towards this crowd. They you don't even know the law. You're, you're cursed. But the irony is, some of these uneducated people in the crowd, they're the ones who believe in Jesus, or at least closer to belief in Jesus. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And we need to pray for humility that helps us, that lets us see God. We need to pray for humility and increasing openness for those who are proud in their unbelief. We need to pray that God would continue to soften the hearts of people. Many people in our country, I mean, especially in the Northwest, many people claim to be open-minded about a ton of things. And yet Jesus is one thing that a lot of people are not open-minded to. We, we need to pray that God would open hearts and minds. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and following. For consider your calling, brothers. Many of you, uh, or, sorry, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose, he's talking about us, remember this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may bo might boast in the presence of God. What a pep talk for the believer. Right? God didn't choose you because you were so smart. God didn't choose you for fill in the blank. There's, it says there's no one who will be able to boast before God, and that's all these Pharisees are doing. They're, they're boasting about what they know, boasting that they can't be fooled, and, and their boasting is a massive obstacle between them and Jesus. Verse 50, it says Nicodemus, who had gone, uh, who had gone to him, meaning Jesus before, and uh, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Right? They're accusing him of being biased. He, are you from the same town? Is that why you're saying this? Nicodemus, he was one of them. Right? He, I'm not sure if he believed yet. We'll, we'll keep watching. But he had the courage to speak out. And he's not even really speaking up for Jesus necessarily. He's just speaking about how he thinks procedurally they should decide judgment on a person. Um, but the Pharisees, they're convinced they know who Jesus is. Right? They believe they know exactly what is correct about Jesus, even though they're wrong on, on, on such a little fact. And the impact of being wrong, like earlier, those in the crowd, is huge. And I wonder if the Pharisees even want to know the truth about Jesus. And instead of looking for reasons to believe in Jesus, it looks like they're searching for reasons not to believe in Jesus which means they won't come and drink, even though they would categorize themselves as, as people who thirst for God. If you gave them a truth serum, I, I wonder if we would discover 
that there's nothing that could cause them to believe in Jesus. Our truth statement for the day, I broke it up into two parts here. Um, believers in Jesus receive the Spirit and, and overflow with life. Like Jesus, there's no one like Jesus. And the offer that he gives is, is unique. He offers life through the Spirit. Yeah, this is life that's abundant. It's free to us. And it comes by believing. So I ask, do you believe? Unbelievers keep finding reasons not to believe. I just read a story about a, a man who uh, was convinced he was dead. And his friends uh, tried to do everything to prove to him that he was, in fact, alive. Right? They, they would reason with him, like, you're walking and talking and breathing. Aren't you alive? And somehow he would rationalize why he was not alive. They took him to a doctor, and the doctor said, no, you're alive, sir. I hear your heartbeat. Uh, well, he didn't believe the doctor's opinion, and in fact, he, he questioned his credentials and whether he was really a doctor at all. So the, the friends are struggling. They're trying to figure out, how do we help our friend? No, like he is alive. And finally, one friend had a brilliant idea, and he, he said to the man, do dead men bleed? And the man didn't hesitate. He said, of course not. A dead man can't bleed. That would be preposterous. So he said, can I prick your finger? The guy agreed to it. So he, he pricks his finger, and, and blood comes out, as we would all expect. And the dead man is astonished. He looks, and he says, I had no idea dead men could bleed. <laughs> right? Man, there, there, are people, there are people that are searching for reasons to not believe in Jesus. If you know Jesus... We've got to be praying for people. We've got to be praying for people to have the humility to see God, that God would stir in their hearts, that he would bring about belief. We have to have the courage to share words with people about Jesus. The gospel must be spoken. You can be the nicest person in your neighborhood. And I know, I think all of us would probably love it if non-Christians would come up to us and go, man, you're so different. Would you tell me about the gospel like that? I bet that's happened for someone. I've never met that person. Ah, I feel like I've heard a person say that. They probably weren't lying. Um, that's never happened to me. Uh, we have to speak the words of the gospel. We have to share. Man, pray. Pray that God would give opportunities. Pray that we could be a light wherever we are, in our neighborhoods, in schools, in our workplace, soccer teams, wherever we are, we need to pray for that. We're going to take communion in a moment here. During these songs, um, you can come up and receive the elements. And this is, this is for people that already believe in Jesus, right? You've already trusted Jesus as your Savior from sin. I'd encourage you to come up, receive the bread and the cup, and then you can take it back to your seat and recall. I want you to recall what God has done, who Jesus is, what it is that we believe, what, what the scripture tells us we believe in him. And then when you're ready, take those elements. If you want prayer, um, we have people that will be in the back to pray with you. It's a little chaotic out there because of the food, um, but no, no one's going to hear you because it's so loud out there. Um, so if you want prayer for anything, please go back and, and, and be prayed for. Let me pray right now. Jesus, we, we thank you. God, we thank you that we can gather together in your name. Lord, I thank you that many, many people in this room know the life that you give. Holy Spirit, I thank you that, that you are in each believer, that, that you, you dwell in us, that we're never alone, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that you bring life to us, and that life is abundant.
that life is way more than any one of us could hold. God, would you bring that life to others? Would you continue to bring that life? Would you give us hearts that long for people to know you, Jesus? Would you open up minds and hearts to you, Lord? It's in your name we pray. Amen.